I'd missed the tryout for the A and B travel team and I had gone late to a makeup tryout where I was the only person trying out for that team. And I walked into a gym, practice had already started and they put me on a side hoop and made me shoot 10 to 15 shots cold and did not hit many of those shots. And they looked at my dad and they said, Hey, listen, like, thanks for coming. We're not going to ask him back. He can play in the regular YMCA version of the league that was associated with those two travel teams. And I got in the car and I cried, man, I cried so hard and he let me do it. It was probably like five minutes. It seemed like 20. I was just sitting in the passenger seat. And when I finally just started to get like the sniffles, the, you know, <laughs> he was like, are okay, you done? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, how do you feel? I feel awful. And he's like, if you don't ever want to feel this way again, you work. Now's when we work. And from that moment on, that's when I came maniacal with my work ethic in basketball. What's up? My name is CJ Finley, and this is the Thrive on Life podcast. I started a brand called Thrive on Life to help other mission-based people, brands, and businesses thrive. Each week, we interview people on topics of business, health, relationships, mindset, and much more to help us thrive in all areas of life. If the messages in this podcast resonate with you, but you're still feeling a little bit stuck in actually implementing these ideas, I'd love to help you on a more personalized level or connect you with somebody that can. So please reach out. Also, if you've got a friend who you know could benefit from hearing this episode, please share the love with them. My goal is always to spread positive impact through the sharing of knowledge, and I would be honored if you could help me achieve this goal. What is up, Thrive Fam? CJ Finley here again with another episode of the Thrive on Life podcast, and today I have a good friend of mine, Mr. Ty Morris. He just flew into town last night. We were both going to be attending HBLT, which I'm very much looking forward to, and I had to bring this guy onto the show beforehand. He is somebody I look up to in a lot of different ways, being a father, one of them, because that's something that if you've listened to this episode, you know that has been something I've really invested into this year. And he's a little bit ahead of the game when it comes to that spectrum. And before we get into it today and all the things that we're going to go over, I just want to know, how are you doing? We're great, man. Awesome. This is my second time down here in about a month, month and a half. What a city. Yeah, you just, I, I believe the hype, man. I, I wasn't sure I was going to believe the hype. And you know what? When people are saying like, okay, what, what is the hype about? It's about the people. I, I was just talking with a good buddy of ours, Eric Hinman, on the way to work out this morning at your gym, Squatch. And um, that's what we were geeking out on is just the community and how deep it is and how respected every single member of the community is. There's no like dead wood. Everybody's bringing something else to the table. I think everybody has like levels and depth that a lot of other cities don't have in terms of either what the business that they're running, their level of fitness acumen, because that's a lot of the world that we interact with. Um, so pumped to be back. Yeah, it's it's something that I, I think I take for granted mm -hmm. because I'm just here all the time and I notice it every time that I, that I leave. Yeah. So whether I'm going to the East Coast mm -hmm. or hanging out with family and I'm looking for a spot to kind of, I call it the watering hole, just somewhere to go where you're going to meet like, like-minded individuals yeah. and just feel good about yourself. And it's something that was started in 2020, like in a time when like the world was Stop. going the opposite Stop. way. It was, yeah, yeah nothing yeah. was happening. So I think that just initially attracted in individuals that 
really, really value relationship mm-hmm. and connect connection. And I think when you start with principles of that, you it, it just extends. When you bring in people that care about connections and relationships, and that's one of the things we're going to touch on here today. And I'd love to start with your story and how you're a professional basketball player and maybe how the opposite of you coming to Austin and like being connected right away because mm-hmm. you played overseas and it's something that when I was looking at your history, I was really infatuated with because one of my dreams as a kid was to play professional sports and potentially like go overseas. I was a soccer player and I played in England when I was 17 and, and went overseas and, and got to see that. But what I realized when I was there was like, holy crap, this is a whole different culture and whole different mm-hmm. way of life. Run us through one, like your story, what led to getting there? And then the takeaway for me of just like, how did you transition your life to thrive in a completely different place? Yeah, it's interesting. I have this discussion a lot and people are like, oh, you play professional basketball. And playing professional basketball, particularly in Europe, maybe not the NBA, but in Europe, is more of a game of like believing in yourself, being uncomfortable, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, being willing to live without the creature comforts we have here in the U.S. Because there, I'm telling you what, there are a lot more talented guys that didn't go play um, because they just didn't want to leave the country. You know, they just didn't have any interest. It, basketball was a thing for me that didn't become a passion until maybe fifth or sixth grade. I was a skateboarder. I wanted to dye my hair blue. Mohawk was in my future. I was pressing my dad hardcore to let me go down that path. I mean, he would take me to skate parks growing up that I had no business going to. I was a good four, five, six, seven years younger than most of the guys there. You know, all the guys were hanging outside smoking cigarettes. I mean, I didn't partake, but that was the crew. And he would take me because I was passionate about skateboarding at that time. But the one thing he did was he always kept me involved with hoops. He would never let me quit. And it was more of, um, you know, if you take it seriously, great. But there, my dad was a big believer in all the intangible things that team sports teach you and the necessity to have those in life, to be able to call upon those in life. That's why he never let me just completely quit and be a, a solo skateboarder. But in fifth and sixth grade is when I started taking it seriously. And what happened was I had missed the tryout for the travel team. And this was Lawrence County, or uh, sorry, Lawrence Township basketball. I'd missed the tryout for the A and B travel team. And I had gone late to a makeup tryout where I was the only person trying out for that team. And I walked into a gym, practice had already started, and they put me on a side hoop and made me shoot 10 to 15 shots cold and did not hit many of those shots. And they looked at my dad and they said, hey, listen, like, thanks for coming. We're not going to ask him back. He can play in the regular, like, call it uh, YMCA version of the league that was associated with those two travel teams. And I got in the car and I cried, man. I cried so hard. And he let me do it. It was probably like five minutes. It seemed like 20. I was just sitting in the passenger seat. And when I finally just started to get, like, the sniffles, the <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was like, All right, okay, you done? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, how do you feel? He's like, I, I feel awful. And he's like, if you don't ever want to feel this way again, you work. Now's when we work. And from that moment on, I don't think there was, we talked a little bit about discipline off topic on the show. 
that's when I became maniacal with my work ethic in basketball. And I would say long-term having a feeling of rejection and being left out and not being wanted, it can provide an amazing amount of fuel. Long-term is probably very detrimental, but you can use it for short periods of time to really fuel hunger. And it did for me. I mean, I really had no business physically playing at the level that I, I played. Everything that I got, I had to work for because there was nothing natural about my abilities day one. So as I worked my way through basketball, Lawrence North um, was a powerhouse in Indianapolis when I played for there. I played my senior year, to put it into context, we were nationally ranked number three in the country. We had two NBA guys, Greg Oden and Mike Conley, most know that went to the national championship for Ohio State. Mike is still playing for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And Greg's career was cut short by injury. We had two other guys that were Division One players, and I was a Division One player. That was our starting lineup my senior year. I didn't play any varsity basketball in high school until my senior year. That's how stacked we were. We were nationally ranked my junior year. And then when we left, they were, Mike and Greg were number one in the country. And they won co-Gatorade Player of the Year. There were 15 guys within a six-year uh, span in Indianapolis that went to the NBA. So this was the type of ecosystem that I was growing up in in Indianapolis. And I had a decision to make when Mike and Greg were coming into Lawrence North, and I was a freshman, I was a year ahead of them, where my dad came to me and he said, hey, you know, you're big 4A school. You'll be able to play on the biggest platform here in the state. There's a 2A school down the street that's private, Sassina, that will take you right now, and you'll get 15, 20 shots a game. What do you want to do? And that was an inflection point for me because I could have taken the route that would have gotten me the accolades, the looks, the appreciation, but from a much smaller pool. And I've always had this thing where I want to see what I have in the bigger pools. Because at least then, I know. Like, I know that, like, the merit-based truth that comes with playing your game, whatever that sport is, in business or in life, in the biggest of the big pools, there's no one can take that away from you. If you've had success, it's great. If you didn't have success, well, at least you knew. And you knew how good the guys were that were at the top. So I said, no, I'm not going to leave. But what that meant was I had to play JV as a junior, which is very embarrassing. I mean, most guys are on JV sophomore, maybe. Most guys in most schools, freshmen. And then they're playing varsity if they're any good. For me, I was playing JV as a junior, dude. So, and by the way, moving to my senior year, I was coming off the bench until midway through the season when Mike got hurt. So all this is to say, um, I didn't get a lot of high school looks. But what happened through that process of being at Lawrence North High School and in that environment of playing such great talent day in and day out was in between my junior and senior year, I broke away from that group and I played on my own AAU team where I could get the shots and I could be the man. And what happened was I grew into myself where I basically had no varsity minutes at the high school level and had multiple division one offers coming out of that summer to the point where the high school coach at Lawrence North was like, I guess I have something wrong. Like this guy needs to be playing. Okay, so that kind of sets the stage for like the the hunger. And as I made my way through um, college, I went to or high school. I went to college at Boston University and had a really strong showing at the start of my career. There, I was freshman of the year in the league, second team all conference, MVP of the team, and then had a bunch of different injury, injuries along the line. I broke both my ankles. I had ACL reconstruction in college. After my first year, I didn't play a full season. 
So I had no full seasons. I started out and I scored 400, 500 points in my very first season. And I mean, there were magazines, dude, that were writing like best NBA prospect in the America East Conference. He's going to have his jersey retired. All of these things. And um, there were two other guards that played with Corey, Corey Lowe and Carlos Strong. These guys were studs. And they said, this is the best trio of guards that have ever come through BU. We never won a conference title. We never run a conference regular season title. We completely underachieved. And I never played a full season after that first year because of injury. And I'll tell you, going from the one side of adversity where you don't get playing time and you have to work your tail off to have everything you have, and then to get notoriety like I did my freshman year in college and start to drink your own Kool-Aid and start to think, well, maybe I am pretty good. I was young. I was 18, 19 years old. And it felt good, man. It was like intoxicating to like work so hard and have that feeling. And I had it. And then injuries took it from me. And I will say that that was one of the darker periods of my entire life. I started seeing a therapist. And why it was so dark was you had worked your entire life with this identity. I am a basketball player. And to have that taken from you by something out of your control, which is an injury. And then to watch the people around you continue to grow and blossom into the roles that they should be blossoming into and feel like you're losing that. You're losing your grasp on something. It was very, very difficult. And to be in Boston, like all those miles away from my family, to be removed, it was tough. But looking back, what it's taught me is a very important lesson. And the lesson is this. The threats that you don't see are the most important to think about. It's the things that could derail you that you're not paying any attention to. It's not the competition in the same gym. It's not the guy that you're looking at across the way that you're comparing yourself to. It's the things that you don't see. It's the crashes in the economy. It's the downsizing at your company. It's your family member getting in a car accident. Sometimes it's your own mind. It's your own mind. And that taught me a very important lesson, which is number one, be grateful for the things that you have in the present moment and work hard to keep them. But also understand that like there's always work to be done. You never have arrived. And that's at that moment what kind of made me turn insular and start to really, really appreciate the process of just getting better. And so I never had a dream of playing professional basketball. What it really turned into was this dream of just being the best that I could be and seeing how far that could take me. And luckily it did take me to professional basketball. And the story about that is, so I graduate college my senior year and, um, and I hire an agent and, and how it works or how it worked back then, at least it's not that long ago, but I'm, I haven't stayed up on the way that the circuit works now. But when you, when you graduate, you hire an agent and typically during the summer, they will find different camps, different tryouts, pro-ams, things for you to get exposure with a similar group of guys that are at your level. Some NBA guys, but mainly like top-tier European guys, mid-level European guys, and they'll bring in coaches, and they'll have exposure camps and things like that, and that's what I did. The agent that I had at the time seemingly had a relationship with a team in Slovakia, Bratislava, who he had previously placed players with, and they needed a point guard post the year after my my senior year in college. And I don't know actually what was going on because I didn't know the facts, but what it felt like to me as the summer progressed was that this was the only team I was hearing about. 
this was the only team that had interest. This is what they were going to pay me. This is how the setup was going to be. Almost like it was a foregone conclusion without my decision that I was going there. So when I started to ask the more difficult questions about, okay, tell me more. Like, what is it about this team? There's no, the, the world is a big place. There are a lot of leagues. This is the only team. And I didn't feel really comfortable. I didn't trust the agent at that point, so I ended up firing him. Well, the problem with the timing of the firing, it was like late July, early August, and all the teams in Europe had already filled their roster spots. So basically, I had to wait. So now there's this gap from August to like January, December, where they start to pick up new guys because they cut guys in the middle of the season. What am I going to do? So this is when I started to go into real-world tie. My grandfather, old-school cat, 40 years of Caterpillar, like retired with a Rolex, engineer, amazing and admirable qualities, hard work, grounded values, all of that, but not in line with the world we're living in today. And he was crushing my dad, by the way. And my dad is, was my best friend until, you know, he passed away a few years ago, but he was crushing him. What is Ty doing? He needs to go get a job. You know, this is what this was all this basketball stuff. How much money is he even going to make anyway? He needs to go get a job, start his career, find a lady, all those good things, because that's what was in my grandfather's mind. And my dad sheltered me from a lot of that. But once I had fired my agent, my grandfather really stepped in and was like, okay, I'll support you. Like, go back out east, go to Boston, go to New York, start to travel up and down the coast, work on your network, see what opportunities they have for you. But the problem was it was 08, 09, dude. The market had melted down. Finance, there was no jobs. Unless you came with like straight A's out of an Ivy, you were not getting a gig in New York or Boston. And I made it to a couple finals rounds. But thank God I didn't get hired. I mean, I was very close, but I didn't make it. And so I came back to Indianapolis, call it October of that year post-graduation. And I'm playing in a pickup league at a local rec center. And I'm still in shape. And there's... Um, a guy that I played with my senior year, his brother was now the video guy for the Indiana Pacers, and he was in the same pickup league. And little did I know he was kind of watching the way that I moved, and he had a good buddy that worked in Philadelphia as an agent that represented European basketball players. And he said, dude, you got to give this guy a look. Like, here's his tape. He went online, found my highlight tape, and he's like, he's still in shape. He needs to go play. So I have an interview set up with a money manager in Indianapolis. I'm walking in to the interview. And I get a call on my cell phone from a Philadelphia area code. And I pick up the phone and it's this agent. I will never forget it. And we're sitting there talking. He says, look, we have this opportunity for a 10-day tryout for a team inclusion of Poca, Romania. You have three days. Make your decision. That's when you got to go. And I walked into this interview and I was polite to the guy that brought me in. But he and I both agreed that I didn't need to be in a dark hole somewhere as an analyst, that I needed to be in front of people so it wasn't a fit. And I agreed it wasn't a fix. I needed to go play hoops. So I left three days later and went over to Romania and, and started playing. Now, when I pulled up, when I left, okay, the furthest I had been away from home was Boston. I mean, I get to Germany. The layovers in Frankfurt missed the flight because the flight out of the U.S. was delayed. It was a 36-hour travel day. For me, the furthest I had been is Boston, two and a half hours, man. So I'm in this airport in Frankfurt. I know I'm going to be delayed. I know I'm going to arrive in Cluj-Napoca, Romania at like 2 a.m. But I'm like, okay, it's part of it. Like deep breath, you'll be all right. And I, I land in Cluj-Napoca and 
I'm trying hard to not like over embellish how bare bones this airport was, but think about like a metal building with a few doors and windows, concrete floors, and basically nothing inside but a couple kiosks and a couple of numbers that highlight where the gates are. I mean, this is not cosmopolitan modern airport living. I pull up, you basically get off one of these giant jets and you walk down the stairs and you're walking on the tarmac, walk into this building. It's like a warehouse. And it's not a knock. It's just the way that they were doing things over there. And when I walk in, nothing is open. 2 a.m. No lights. There's one giant human being standing in the lobby of this airport. And it's the team manager that's coming to pick me up. The guy that I would end up living with. And he and his family in like a commune set up apartment. And um, massive, dude. 6'4", 250 to 275, hulking guy. I'm like, okay, here we go. So I walk up and he speaks broken English. He's like, hey, like, we'll go get in the car. We'll get you to their hotel. I'm like, yeah, great. So I hand him all my bags. By the way, I have a few bags because I'm going to be there for a while. And he just like picks them up, put them on his shoulders like they're just grocery bags. He's super strong. We're walking outside and I'm like, okay, this guy's got to have an SUV or something. This guy's massive. And we get to the parking lot, the pay to park parking lot. And we're walking through and I'm like looking for these SUVs. So I'm not really seeing any big cars. And we roll up on this car, and it's like a Fiat. <laughs> it's like the smallest car that anyone of his side size would be like acceptable sitting in. And when he gets in, dude, it's like a, one of those bears in the circus, like in a clown car. And he's like, he gets me in there, and he's barely fitting in the front seat, leaned over the steering wheel, and we're, we start driving. Okay. Romania fell from communism in 1989. So when you're looking at the aesthetic of the architecture in Romania, it represents Soviet bloc. Very gray, not a lot of aesthetic diversity on the side of the buildings. Almost all the apartment buildings look the same. And the only color that you're seeing when you're driving are really the neon signs in the windows. One in particular where the pharmacy sign was like a green plus sign. And you would just see that periodically. But there was no color, barely any lights. And we're just ripping down this road in Romania. I'm like, okay, where am I going? What am I doing here? You know, there was nothing Americanized about the experience at all. We pull up to this hotel <clears throat> and it looks like, it basically looks like a f- um, industrialized frat house is the way that the hotel looked like when we walked, when we walked up to the side of the building. And when we walked to the door, there was no like front desk. There was just like a wooden podium that you would have in elementary school where the teacher would stand behind and tell you what to do. And on that podium, there was like a written two-fold folder that had like details about names of people that were staying there, what room they were in, when they checked in. Behind him was a mat on the wall that hung probably like 20 different keys on key rings. This is how old school it was. And they're talking back and forth, the hotel clerk and the manager in Romanian. I have no clue what they're saying but they're laughing, they're pointing at me, laughing again. I'm like, this is great. What am I doing? I should probably just go home. And when they get done talking, he goes, okay, manager turns to me, he goes, go outside, up the stairs, which were metal stairs on the side of this building, graded stairs, in the door, and when you open that door to the second level, you're the first door on the left. Grab your bag, I'll bring the others up. So I did. Dude, it's the middle of winter, by the way, in the Soviet block. It is so cold so cold there like the worst snowstorm in chicago cold 
I go up these stairs and I go in this door, in the door on the left. I walk in. It's a rug. It's it's not concrete, but it's like it's basically like polished pavement floor. A bed sitting on a metal bed frame. Basic sheets. One table with a tube TV sitting on top of it, and one picture of a farmhouse and land in Romania that had been painted. It's about a 10 inch by 10 inch picture on the wall on basically what looks like concrete walls. And I walk in and, and the lights are full fluorescent. Like there's nothing comfortable about this. And I sit on the edge of the bed and I put my back down and I put my head in my hands. I was like, this, this is the worst move ever. And about 25 seconds later, he comes in and goes like, dude, we're not staying here. And I don't know if he thought it was a joke, if it was a way to break me, or if he was truly like trying to find a place for me to stay. But luckily, the next place that we went was a little bit better, offered a little bit more in the creature comforts like I talked about. And then the journey started for me in, in Romania. So um, long-winded story, but that's how it opened up. And, and um, you know, the lesson there is you regardless of the hardship and anything that you're going to go try to do, when you make a decision, you offer your, you need to offer yourself the opportunity to see it through for a period of time and not make knee-jerk re- reactions at the front end because it turned out to be the most formative experience of my entire life. And had I turned around and said, take me back to the airport, I would have missed out on, on all of it. Hell of a story to kick this off. The thing that's rattling around in my head, though, is do you still skateboard? Uh, I don't, but my wife and I have talked about, we have a skate park that just got built and, uh, she's like, you need to go over there and with Lane and my son and, and take him out and show him a little something. So I love that because before we jumped on the show, Ty and I were talking and we have, we have a lot in common and when it comes to that story, something that stuck out to me is when you were talking about the choice of do I go to the small pond mm. and thrive mm. or do I go to this bigger pond and what I like to say, fuck around and find out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know what's going to happen and there's no right way. Like, no. For, for some people, the small pond is, is great and they, they live a, a wonderful life there. And then for other people, I'd rather lose going to the big pond in a lot of areas in life. And it's interesting because I have almost the opposite story where when I played sports, I also skateboarded and sports took me away from skateboarding. Mm -hmm. And then as I started getting older, I shied away from even like wanting to play in college. And my dad, similar to yours, was guiding me and saying, you're never going to get this opportunity to play in college again. Like whether you play beyond that, it is what it is, but you've worked so hard for so long and he convinced me to go play. And when I got there, the cool thing for me was it reassured me in a lot of ways that, yeah, this isn't my career move Mm -hmm. and it allowed me to have more fun with it. But I also was hanging around guys that had made that next step. And one thing for me, which is clearly what you did was the cost. I wasn't willing to pay the cost. It wasn't necessarily even the skills. It was like, I didn't want to give up certain things in my life, like the skateboarding actually started skateboarding during college soccer. That's when I picked it back up. Uh, Two of my roommates were doing it. And it reminded me of like, okay, maybe this isn't the thing for me. Right. 
that's where in your story, what, like you had this inside you to keep going and keep doing, but what was the breaking point? Because I think when I reflect back on my life, there's this book, Essentialism, and it talks about basically the sunk cost fallacy of you put so much into your life and you literally end up in Romania and you start playing there. How do you decide to hang up the shoes at some point? That has to be such a difficult decision. Whereas like when I got to college, I almost had a, a like sigh of relief because I realized, yeah. oh, I don't have to go pro. Like I can just have fun with this and do what I want and whatever. But I know what it's like. I mean, we were talking about how I am with this podcast and how nerdy I am with it. Like I want to go pro at this. So I know the weight of that feeling. It's a real weight, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. do you do it from however many thousands of miles away you are where you went so far to get there that you start looking in the mirror and saying, maybe it's time. Like what was, what did that look like? Tell like you were wonderful at telling that the, the first part of the story, but what did it look like in terms of getting out of that? Because that was your identity. And I know a lot of males out there struggle with that transition. Yeah. It's, it, it is very hard to decouple yourself from the thing when the thing has been the part of you that's been the biggest for so long. I see it now. I mean, there are guys in Europe that in the back of their mind, if they're truly being honest, they would love to transition out and find something else to do. But it's hard. What do you do? You've been doing it for so long. People give you such praise for the thing, and that's addicting. There's just so many things that go along with it that make the decision difficult. And for me, I can't take a ton of credit. My body was what told me. You know, I had two ankle reconstructions in college. I had an ACL in college. I had broken my hand in college, um, all of which caused me to miss time. Then I get to Europe, and I play... Um, that first year we were lucky enough to win the championship Then I came back and tore my ACL for the second time in that second season in, in one of the, like the Euro challenge, Euro cup, um, pool games. And then I rehabbed and then I came back my third year and was chasing a loose ball out of bounds and tore a bunch of cartilage in my knee, chasing that loose ball. And when I went in to see the doctor after that, well, I'll be third knee injury slash surgery. He's like, dude, it's like, this is not a good look. Your early twenties, like your knees, like mid thirties, 40 for basketball players, not regular humans. This is like 50, like your regular human walking around. Like you're going to be in bad shape if you keep this up. Right. The other thing too, I mean, that didn't scare me because I had come back from injury and rehab. So the rehab process didn't necessarily scare me. I'm used to some workhorse. I'm used to that. But what was so discouraging, dude, was I never had a clean off season where I could actually like work on my game. And all I was was trying to pick up where I was last season. And these guys are improving and new guys are coming in every year and they're better and better and better. And it just got too tough to just maintain status quo. Because I would rehab, I'd come back, I'd be strong, but I was the same as I was eight months prior when before I got hurt. I wasn't better. And that's when I just looked at myself and I said, dude, like, now's the time. You've done it three years. 
you've pushed your body to the brink and your body's telling you no more. We can't do it. So I had peace. I had peace with that. To actively make that decision, I can't give advice on. Because I think if I had to actively make that decision, it would have taken me so much longer. Because when you have that heart of finishing what you started and taking it as far as you can go, you have one or two choices. Either your body breaks like it was mine or someone has to tell you we don't want you anymore. And as long as some of the guys that I played with are still getting told they're wanted by these teams, they're going to have a hard time breaking away from it. It's like anything. Um, I think about it with now that I'm in the business world, in the corporate world, and that's what happens in the corporate world as well. People that work 40, 50 years for the same company, 30 years for the same company, 20 years from the same company, what happens to them? A lot of times they just stay until they're told they're not wanted anymore. Or the economy shifts and there's no jobs in that particular industry. But having that experience, I think, was my first foray into having introspection about identifying what was next for me after the transition. And that introspection has only grown and become better and stronger over time where I've become like more attuned to the way that I'm feeling in certain situations and not putting blinders on and measuring myself by sheer competition and stack ranking within a pool of people to saying, am I playing the right game? And, and what do I actually want at the end of all this? And, and we've talked a little bit on the side anecdotally on the hike we did in Palm Springs, et cetera, but kids will do that to you as well. I mean, it's just been a another addition onto that introspection about what is this all for? What do I want to give to to Lane and Rue at the end of all this? And not just give them by way of like tools and skill sets for themselves to go utilize, but what part of me do I want to give to them? How much of me do I want to give to them? And being very cognizant about that. Because when you're playing sports, dude. Honestly, it's pretty easy from a holistic point of view. The training's hard. The physical um, conditioning is tough. You know, being a part of a team, depending on the personnel you have and the teammates you have, can be hard. But it's so focused. There's, There's not a bunch of decisions to make day in and day out on how I allocate my time. And not only how I allocate that time today, but what is the the multiplier effect on that time spent today on the future? It's pretty straightforward. You put in the effort today, you work on your body, you watch the game film, you study, you put up shots. Typically, it's a pretty good formula for great outcomes in the game. Life is so different than that. There is no roadmap. And a lot of times athletes get caught in the real world with needing guidance. They can be like really great workhorses, but particularly if they were good teammates, and good players, they were good soldiers for the coach. And sometimes life needs you to not be a good soldier to others and be a great soldier to yourself and what you feel like you need to put into practice today, to be selfish with today, so that your future self feels really good about those outcomes. And when I stopped playing basketball, that was my first foray into like having introspection and saying, okay, now what do you want? Excuse me, what do you want? Now's your choice. Now you can make that direction. And I've only tried to grow that over time. What was your social life over there? Because 
every time I have a podcast, I do my best to put myself in the shoes of whoever I'm speaking with. And you were injured, it seems like, every offseason. And I know what that's like, too. How did you not feel lonely? Like, how how did you battle that? Well, that's how I, that's how I got with Alex at at the beginning, was when I went over there in the middle of the winter, and half the people you interact with don't want to speak English to you. I spent a lot of time on G Chat, dude. That was like <laughs> that's how we were like, you know, we were dropping right, into people. Explain for the young bucks out yeah, there yeah, what yeah. G Chat is. Yeah, it, it's the equivalent of dropping into someone's DMs, I would imagine, in today's world. Um, but back then, I mean, it wasn't quite as like archaic as AOL Instant Messenger. Um, you guys, that's too much for the young bucks. Well, we won't go that far, but G chat. I mean, that's how I got my way. Hey, I, well, some uh, dude, that's, that's what we had to do, man. Get, <laughs> we, we just upgraded to G chat. Now you have DMs. I don't even want to know what's, yeah, what's coming it's next. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I was never a part of the app game, but so G chat was the, the communication tool as a part of Gmail. And I don't even know if you can still do it, but you would find people on there with screen names the same way for those familiar with AOL and semester, you'd have a screen name, but it would be their email address. And you would just start chatting. And Alex and I were kind of on completely different sides of the planet. So when I would come home at night, or I'd be in the middle of the day, she would be at home at night and vice versa. She'd be working during the middle of the day and be on Gchat and I'd be at home at night with a lot of free time. So we started to talk and she was like, what are you doing? This seems ridiculous. You're where in Romania doing what? Playing basketball for who? Like they have leagues. And we just started some commentary. And after that first season, I went up to visit her in Chicago, and that's how we got together. But the social life was tough the first year. I mean, I had a couple of guys on the team, Serbian guys on the team. They were tough, dude. They didn't want really want me around. I, I posed a little bit of a threat. By the end of the season, like we had a solid relationship. But at the beginning, it was very, very hard. And I leaned on the American guys that were on the team. And I leaned on a couple of Romanian guys um, that were awesome to me. But that was tough. It was very, very, very hard because there was nothing. I, I really couldn't go have an Americanized experience there. There were a couple of universities, but for the most part, it wasn't like living in Spain or Italy or Germany. There was one McDonald's in town, but that was it. There was one Starbucks like 25 minutes away, but that was it. So most of the stuff you had was like literally you're watching horse and buggy self-sustaining farming communities based on like the surf community that was there 1700s, 1800s, right next to some of the richest people in the entire country driving the best possible cars. It's just this weird dichotomy. But I will tell you, the one thing that I benefited from was the fan base there was the best in the entire country in Cluj. So they love their basketball players. So over time, when being there three years, they made me feel really um, really at home. I didn't have a cell phone. Well, I didn't have an iPhone. I had one of those Nokia like snake phones where you had to push the one three times to get to see or whatever. Um, and, and the thing coming back home that I really appreciated and what was formative about that experience in Romania was it was a very poor country, relative, and that a lot of people have enjoyed the simple pleasures in life. And things were a little bit slower than they were in the States. And you could feel the cadence stepping off the plane in the U.S. when you got home. And I won't say that I was like, like holier than thou, like I didn't jump right back into, you know, uh, instant gratification that U.S. is known for, but it at least helped me see the feeling. You know, it was like, 
oh man, the contrast therapy that we always do with ice and hot, yeah. right? You could tell the difference, right? And I think at least having the clarity on the difference has helped me over time. Just, okay, you're running a little bit too hot, man. Take a step back. Yeah, let's run through it. Like, how does that help as a dad? I, I feel that understanding speed mm. and how hot or cold you should be going in, in a certain direction is extremely important in in fatherhood especially like you're mentioning that your dad was really invested in in you becoming an athlete it helps me think through when Aiden is older where and when do I need to be there most mm. and how do I line my today to get there do I have to go faster or do I take do I pump the brakes and go a little bit slower and, and for me what it has looked like over the past seven months that he's been with us is he's going to daycare in January. So he, right. we have a nanny here at home and I get to see him every day. So I've essentially slowed my business down a little bit so that I could see him more yeah. while I have the opportunity to versus like old me would just have probably just had the blinders on and not have even thought about it. But this is like him in his infancy, your children are a little bit older and you've been at this longer. Like how did that experience in, Romania and it being a little bit slower of a country compared to here where instant gratification and like go, go, go is a huge, what I call a trap. Like I think people get trapped in it. Yeah. But how does that been a positive impact on, on fatherhood for you? And how old is Aiden now? He'll be seven months in like, okay. Yeah. A week. That's yeah. I was thinking around there six or seven months. Um, well, first thing I'll say is Alex is my governor. My wife is my governor. I mean, she keeps me really honest because she knows that part of me, which is the driver, hyper-competitive. We talked a little bit about our like ADHD, ADD. When I really want to go accomplish something, very few things stand in my way from going to accomplish it. I can't tell you how long it's going to take me to accomplish the thing, but everything that I've set out but my mind to and been driven towards, I've eventually gotten there. She knows that about me. So she steps in and says, hey, man, like, you're not here. Where are you? Where are you? Come, come back. So having a partner, as you know, Aaron, like, it's just, it's so important with everything that you're trying to juggle and accomplish along with having Aiden. We were spoiled with Lane because Lane was a COVID baby. He was born in 2019. COVID happened in February, March of 2020. I was home all year with him. So there was like a built-in, it's kind of like the injuries with basketball, man. Like it was built in for me to be around and be with him. And it was the moments that were, that I cherished the most because I could build that bond with him. Um, it, it's going back to your point about like slowing down with kids. It's hard. It's like, I think one of the more difficult things that I found in life, which is, this muscle that I've used to work to help me accomplish so much isn't necessarily a muscle that needs to be worked to accomplish the most I can with my kids. Mm. Yeah. Uh, honestly, sometimes you need to put the muscle to bed to accomplish the most you can with your kids. It's almost like yoga. Sometimes mm. you got to use Dude, it's such <laughs> a great analogy. Muscles. It's such a great analogy. <laughs> More breath. More breath, less muscles, like less contraction more extension. And, um, I think, 
I think we do a really solid job with our kids. There are moments that I'm not as present as I should be as with anybody. You're human. And there are moments that I feel really good about my presence. Um, I don't have a solution other than I think periodic non-negotiables with the family are the only way to stay grounded in the moments where you're going high octane at work. What does that look like? Like in practice. So in practice is I take my son and daughter to school every day. That's a non-negotiable pretty much for me because I have 10 minutes in the car with them. I can send them off on their day. I can look my son in the eye and say, Hey man, like you're going to rock it today. Where are you at? Like, look at me. How's your head? Like you feeling good. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to outline what's going to happen that day for him. Who's going to pick him up. My wife is really good at that communication. But it's a way to set the intention for the kids for the day. And I want that. I want that. Now, there are days where I travel on the road and I can't be there. But if I'm in town, 95% of the time I'm dropping them off at school. And they know that. They that, know. That's empowering to them. Yeah. They, they know that. A lot of times Alex and I are having breakfast together with them in the morning for the same exact reasons. If we're in town and work is not in the way, we're picking them up from school together a lot of times. I love that. And they get to see us both interact. There was, there was times where my parents, I didn't see them interact a lot. And one of the things Alex and I want to try to be cognizant about is how can they learn their relationship management through the relationship management that we try to show them and exhibit, not just tell them about. I mean, and, that's so, like what you're talking about right here, I, I mean, I look for tips and advice from so many people out there, but I haven't, that unlocks something. Because if I think back to my childhood and growing up in the 90s is, is a lot different than, than now. The, the internet and the ability to be remote and flexible is just yeah. wonderful mm. um, for, for being a man and, and a woman. Uh, my mom would cook us dinner. We, they'd take us to practice. And then by, when I got home, that's when I would see my dad. So the whole like get in the car together and go do things was, was rare didn't happen much for for me either and by the way they they were doing the best that they could yeah right so um and it doesn't always need to be like rainbows and butterflies either i think a little bit of the edginess and the reality of the world is good to expose them to but we try we try and and i would say the last thing that i can't take for credit for that my wife has implemented a lot is a lot of advocating for themselves and creating individuals instead of reliers on their parents. So an example of this is every night before Lane goes to bed, we do affirmations every single night. We won't, either my wife does them or I do them, and we won't leave the room until he does them. And we, we won't leave the room until he does them. We can't say them. So some nights he'll go, I want you to say them. And I'll say, no, you're going to say them. And these aren't the hardcore things, but they're basically this. And he has some flexibility at the margin to add some like, humor and like some color in there but it's basically like i'm kind i'm strong i am brave i love my family my family loves me and i try really hard and we do it every night and he'll say some other stuff in there too but now it's getting to the point where he wants to say it and if we don't say it he's like well we're going to say the things before you get out of bed and so that's one example another example is helping him feel 
the emotions that he's feeling like my dad did in the car when we were talking about me getting cut. And then helping him evolve and create the tools necessary for him to deal with those without us being there. Because I think if one of the things that I would have to take away from my struggles when I was in college and I was not playing and I was hurt and all that was, I didn't, I was not equipped mentally. You didn't have the tools and tools are based on repetition. If, if you don't repeat yeah. them, you're not going to be able to pick them up and, and use them when you need them. And if you're already starting this young and the repetition in it, it's just second nature. It's just, it's almost like a software at that point. It's just built into you. And I'll tell you something that was astonishing. That was like two things that have happened in the last two weeks that have been two of the proudest moments of me as a father. We're doing some yard work in the back. We're getting like pavers put in and concrete put in. And one of the dogs got out and they're like paw prints in these concrete pavers. And I was frustrated about it. At that same moment, our daughter has had RSV and Alex and I have been trading off throughout the nights and spending time in her room. So we're sleep deprived. We're both a little bit edgy. And he could tell that both of us were not in a good spot. He's like, Daddy, are you frustrated? I'm like, yes, I am frustrated. He's like, okay. So I just take a deep breath. And at the same breakfast table, 15 minutes later, my wife was getting frustrated with Rue. And he walked over to her and held her hands and said, okay, take a deep breath. He's four years old, dude. <laughs> That's wild. That okay. is wild. Okay. So when he does that, part of it may be for show. He may be not internalizing everything that it is, but it gives me confidence that at least he's understanding in these types of moments where the energy is high and actually like pushing against the thing isn't the thing to do, taking a breath and stepping back from the thing is the thing. He's acknowledging it. I think that was really special. Even thing. just having the awareness. Oh is my the God. Big thing. It's just like to understand because I think at the end of the day, like for me, when I look at that from the outside, a lot of trauma is created from not understanding different situations. Agreed. Like that's yeah. what it's created from. It's just like when you hold on to that stuff and you're not, you're not, you don't have the tools to yep. like deal with whatever's happening because life's going to come at you. Like age old Rocky saying is like, it's, not how hard you hit it's how hard you can get hit and then mm -hmm. keep going and it's just like that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when you get hit though so it's going to hurt yeah what's the tool to to get through it in the right way um it's amazing to hear that and something you said earlier that i want to kind of like loop back to is what do you want to give him and it also reminds me of something i asked myself is like what do i want to shelter from him you mentioned your dad kind of sheltering you from your grandfather at certain points what are some, like, what are two traits, like one that you, you hope to give to your children that you've loved about yourself? And then on the flip side of that, what is something that you've thought through that you're like, I'm actually trying to work on myself and I want to make sure that that doesn't get transferred over? Yeah. So boundaries is one thing I hope that he does much better than I do with. I'm horrible at boundaries. It's taken me a long time to really advocate for myself. And I think it's a byproduct of like being cut early, not belonging early, um, insecurity around fitting in. Um, not that I was like an outcast or anything, but that, that was a big part of it. And I think sports also, when you don't make those teams, it can drive you as it did with me, but it's driving you because there's this fear that you're never good enough to fit in. 
And so how that manifests sometimes for me, if I'm not careful, is I will sacrifice everything that's important in a moment to make space based on someone else's schedule. To make the team. Yeah. And that's horrible, man. Long-term, that is very bad behavior. And it's like codependent. There's like all sorts of things. My wife, on the flip side, is a very good role model with boundaries. And Lane is very good at setting boundaries for his physical space, for his emotional space, when he needs to take a break. And I think that is just such a powerful thing because it's, it's basically cancels the noise around you. It cancels the noise in your head about what you should be doing. Yeah. And then helps give clarity about what you really are feeling in that moment and what is right. And I think a lot of like, it's taking me uh, whatever, I'll be 37 in a few weeks. I mean, dude, it's just in the last couple of years that I've really gotten a really nice grasp on creating boundaries, being okay with telling people no and not explaining the no. You know, like the answer is no. Not like, no, I have this other party and this other party was on the books for two weeks and if I cancel now, I can't just get in the habit of canceling things I commit to and it's like, no, the answer is no, right? Um, so there's all sorts of stuff to unpack. That's the one thing. The thing that, that my dad gave me or tried to give me that I hope to give him is the perfect balance between confidence and humility. And just making sure that he can weave that tie-dye shirt as, as seamlessly as he possibly can. To know when you need to be um, a great team player. To know when to leverage the people around you and for their strengths and for their relationship. And to not be scared to ask for help. And to also have the confidence to know that no one's going to come to save you. That you have to go and do it even when you're unsure. You have to be brave and to balance those two things. Because if you can do that in this world, dude, you can do anything you want to do. Most people don't. They can't. They either let the world walk on them and they're too humble. They're apologizing for everything. And it's interesting. I think the the world actually, we cater too much to that. Like I think too many people fall in that group mm-hmm. and... That's how we got to this world. I think too many people, like, because we're, we're taught to be, to have humility and be humble, but the reality is, like, closed mouths don't get fed. No. no. And there's a lot of closed mouths out there. I've, yeah. I've noticed that after mo- having to move away and, like, fend for myself and s- just seeing the complacency from other people when in reality they think that they're be that, like, when you mentioned right, it's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm being almost, like, reserved in yeah. a way. Yeah. And we're just not taught that. No. the confidence side of how to do that in a, in a great way. So I love how you're talking about that. The assertiveness. And, it, and it's not a necessarily an assertiveness when you're, when you're fully sure, because I don't, I don't think there's a lot of bravery in being assertive when you're fully sure. It's, it's the bravery and the assertiveness when you're not quite sure when you're 50, 50, but it feels right. And we're going to take a shot and we're going to see. And, Nothing happens if you play a safe man long-term. At the same time, you can't be trampling everybody for your own ambitions. And you need people to succeed. It's just the way it is. Relationships are important. And I know you're huge on relationships. I'm huge on relationships. It's just not bending at the will of those relationships in lieu of the things that you're trying to accomplish in life. And so I think that balance, if I can give him that balance 
as a father and make sure he has all the other intangible things. He's kind and all that. But if he could have that skill set, man, that would be, I think that'd be a success. And what it reminds me of is he's just going to watch you. So if you're working on that in your own self, he's just going to watch that. And that's how he's going to, how he's going to navigate because saying, saying and doing are two different things. So if he watches somebody that, it really cares about those two things like you're talking about, then it, it's going to happen. It's almost like a guarantee uh, for most. So it's, it's awesome uh, to hear you talk about this. I've learned so much. We're getting close to wrapping up here. And, and towards the end, I always ask the guests kind of like what they're working on and yeah. what they're passionate about and just really just give you the floor to kind of take a couple minutes here to talk about what it is that you're doing out there in the world right now so that anybody else that's listening to this could potentially get involved and connect with you. So I, we haven't really touched on like, yeah. I, I, ne- I which don't I'm like glad. I mean, this has been, what great. do you do? This has been great. Yeah. It's no, not it's... a question that I ask here. It's more, uh, towards the end. We just give you the floor to kind of describe what's uh, feeding your flame right now. Maybe somebody else out there. Yeah. Could benefit. Yeah. For me, I I've done a lot. I made a lot of transitions in my last 20 years after basketball. So I've worked in a bunch of different industries. What I'm really passionate about, um, in terms of what I share on any of the social platforms, the public platforms that people will watch me on has very little to do with the technical aspects of any one job or any one business that I'm either starting or involved in. What it has to do is what we've talked a lot about today, which are what are the evergreen foundational pieces that we need to spend more time on that allow us to transition, migrate and be successful no matter what it is that our hearts desire. We want to do in three years, five years, 10 years from now. The thing that I've understood about myself is that I'm an evolving creature. I don't, I don't fit in a box. I refuse to be defined by what it is that I do air quotes. And a lot of the world wants to put you there. And the reason a lot of the world stays there is because they don't have these migratable tools that allow them to be successful outside of that one area. They've learned how to build that one widget. And when that widget goes away, they haven't worked on how to negotiate, how to sell, how to build, uh, how to build relationships, um, how to operate as a solopreneur, how to work with people. That's what I'm passionate about when it comes to the things that I talk about on my social platforms and sharing with people. So if people are going to go out there and find me, um, that's what they will see. And the, the only message that I would have for anybody, and this is kind of words for myself, is like, regardless of where you are, that is just one use of the skills and the character that you bring to the table. If people are valuing you less than what you want to be valued as, all you have to do is change the setting. You don't have to worry about anything else. It's just the lens in which your skills are being judged. It's not the end all be all. It's not your value as a human. It's just you're in the wrong place with the wrong people doing the wrong thing. So just change the setting. And I'm talking about tools that will help people do that. So check me out. That last part reminds me of there's more than Slovakia. (laughs) There's more than Slovakia. That's the tagline. I love it. There's more than just Slovakia. There's other places out there that will love and appreciate you. And that one really hits home because like uh, when I grew up, I grew up in the Northeast and then I went to Nashville, I went to Houston, I went to here if you don't like what's around you, yeah. you either have to change what's around you by changing right. yourself. And that that's a, that's grueling. It's going to take a long time or you have to change 
where your two feet are. And that's something that I did. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made. So it, it's cool hearing and talking to somebody that has had their two feet in so many different areas yeah. of life. And I look forward to learning from you more and more and spending the next couple of days with you. Last question I always ask everybody is if you were to define the word thriving, mm. how would you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. So where my head goes to thrive is, well, if you had had me answer this question 10 years ago, there would have been a lot of external success metrics applied to it. And where I think I am today is thriving is being at peace with the performance you have in the world. That What that means to me is that your performance is based on who you're doing it with, where you're doing it, and the type of work that you're doing it and the Venn diagram that meets in the middle of those three things. So that's thriving. It's being at peace with the performance you have in the world. Hell yeah. Gives you a visual of like how to, if you're listening to this, literally just map that for yourself. That's huge. If somebody listened to this and they want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, Ty Mori, Ty underscore Mori at Instagram is probably the best way to reach out. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm active on those two platforms for the most part. And yeah, just hit me up. Oh yeah. I always talk about the biggest takeaway I have at the very end. And for this one, there was a lot of them, but I, I think the takeaway isn't necessarily one thing here, but you went on like a 20 minute storytelling to start this episode. And the biggest takeaway for me is that's something that I want to learn how to do better a better job of because as the host like it's rare that i get to mm -hmm. to do that I'm, I'm the one that wants to bring people on that can do that but one i want to validate you and you were very detail-oriented talking about like the picture and the painting in the romanian hotel and the graded stairs that is a very sharp skill that you have so one keep leaning into Thank that you. because yeah. that's really sweet and then two anybody else out there i want to tell you that your story matters. So I want to also applaud you for coming on and, and giving yourself the grace to talk at length like that because I think a lot of people don't ever give themselves the chance to do that. And one of the reasons I started the podcast is I like to write my thoughts down, talk about different thoughts and like give myself, like you said, this is for me, it's not for anybody else. Like yeah. what you're talking about in terms of where you're at in your life and taking the external away give yourself the opportunity to tell that 20 minute story. And it doesn't have to be to anybody else out there. It could literally be your journal. It could be you writing a book. It could be you thousand percent. starting your own thousand podcast percent. and doing it. And that was my biggest takeaway. Cause I, it's hard to keep my attention and you did it beautifully in the, in, the, in that 20 minute span. And I, I just really, really enjoyed that. So I, I hope everybody you, else, brother. yeah, this, this was fun. Everybody else out there, the best thing that you can do for Ty and myself here is I'd love to get that story out to as many people as possible. So if it hit home with you and you know, it can hit home with somebody else out there that, you know, please share it with them. Give us that five star rating and review. That's how more people will hear us and reach their thriving life. This is CJ Finley with the Thrive on Life podcast. Till next time, drive on y'all.
What's up, y'all? This is CJ again. And on behalf of the small team here at Thrive on Life, I'd like to thank you for listening to one of our episodes. Our mission in life is to help people like you fuel your passion and make every heartbeat count. And we realize the best way to do this is together as a team. So we'd love for you to join in on this mission and connect with like-minded individuals within our Thrive on Life community. To do so, please head to thriveonlife.com and connect with us there. We'd love to chat with you. Before I sign off, I'd like you to always remember one thing. When we strive together, we thrive together. So please do your part in helping others thrive on life.